Essentially, the idea is the same as a Hollywood bus tour, you know. But instead of showing film stars, we show houses that belong to oligarchs and kleptocrats. Dear listeners of The Laundry, welcome back to another episode. And I'm super excited to have today's guest, Oliver Bullough, as on the show. He's an award-winning journalist and his work appears frequently in The Guardian, the New York Times and GQ. He's also written some very exciting books on the topic of financial crime. He's written Moneyland, Why Thieves and Crooks Now Rule the World and How to Take It Back, and also his latest book, Butler to the World, How Britain Became the Servant of Tycoons, Tax Dodgers, Kleptocrats and Criminals, which I have here. So welcome, Oliver. Thanks very much for having me on the show. This latest book, Butler to the World, is scaringly well-timed with the invasion of Ukraine and the sanctions imposed by the West and, you know, the more current effort now to try to freeze the efforts of the oligarchs. So good good timing on that. Yeah, it was strange, really, because uh, last autumn, so autumn 2021, when we were discussing publicity, uh, the publishing company, we were trying to work out, you know, how do we make financial crime and Britain's enabling of financial crime kind of cut through in a mainstream way. And we were, you know, chucking ideas around and we had some thoughts, but none of them were really amounting to all that much. And I suppose, you know, we were just hoping that maybe people who had bought Moneyland would buy it and people would be interested. And then suddenly um, the Ukraine crisis happened and everyone wanted to know about oligarchs. Everyone wanted to know about financial crime. And it's been a pretty busy year ever since, to be honest, which, you know, is obviously awful because it's terrible that it took such a colossal tragedy to finally make people take seriously the issue of kleptocracy and financial crime. But I suppose at least people are now discussing it. And hopefully that means that these kind of crises and tragedies might not be quite so serious in future. I mean, possibly. Yeah, and uh, I didn't know that much about it, to be honest, even though I work in the compliance space, not to this detail. And I listened to this book on audio version during Christmas, and I found myself doing longer and longer cross-country skiing uh, trips just to like, oh, I need to listen to one more chapter before I get home. It's I really can recommend it to everyone. And it's uh, shocking and depressing and also like brilliantly written. So I'm very excited to take our listeners into a deep type of this today. But how did you become interested in the financial crime space and what inspired you to write these books? Yeah, so I'm not an, an economist or uh, a compliance guy. I'm a, I'm a, I studied history at university. I was always passionately interested above all in, in Eastern Europe. Uh, you know, when I was a student, it was the late 1990s and there had been this whole period during my teenage years when you know, communism had ended and there'd been the war in Yugoslavia and then, you know, endless turbulence in Eastern Europe. And it really felt like that that's where history was happening. And I found it fascinating and wanted to witness it and see it all. So when I left university, I moved to Russia. I moved to St. Petersburg in 1999. And I had this kind of idea that I would be witnessing the development of democracy and prosperity and freedom and everything and seeing, you know, Russia and Ukraine and the other former Soviet republics being welcomed into the kind of European family. That was my slightly, well, extremely naive 
vision of what I was going to be doing. Um, obviously, that didn't happen. About uh, two or three weeks before I arrived in St. Petersburg, Vladimir Putin became Prime Minister of Russia. Uh, he's been in charge in one way or another ever since. And so throughout that period, instead of it being Russia becoming more democratic, it's become less democratic. And I set out really to try and write about why that was happening, what that meant. Um, and I kept coming across corruption. Uh, initially, um, I kept coming across corruption in a literal sense in that people kept shaking me down for bribes. You know, I'd be walking down the street or trying to go through an airport or through a port or whatever. Um, but then the more I looked into the sort of decline of democracy, um, the decline of um, liberty in various ways, the more I kept coming up against the fact that you had this very small number of oligarchs uh, who had become ex astonishingly wealthy while everyone else had lost almost everything. And it seemed increasingly that you couldn't explain what had happened to Eastern Europe or in the former Soviet Union without looking at the oligarchs. Oligarch, it's on the front page of your book. It says the book that oligarchs don't want you to read. Well, yeah, I mean, exactly. You know, it's the, the thing to understand about oligarchs is that oligarchs are good at some things, right? They're good at stealing stuff and killing people and rigging elections, but they're not good at other things. They're not good at, at you know, bringing legal cases in Western jurisdictions. They're not good at, you know, it, you know it, initial public offerings of their shares in, on major stock exchanges. They're not good at, you know, buying property in, in, in West London. They need help for all those things. And so who provided the help? And that was what London did. And that is the title of the book, Butler to the World. So what, exactly. do, you, what do you put in the term, the word butler? What, what, what's happened Well, here? I mean, so essentially every scam I wrote about, every major example of financial crime, whether it was, you know, I don't know, the Danske Bank money laundering case or, I mean, you name it, it doesn't really matter what it was. Um, there was always a British role. Whether, whether it was a British shell company or a British lawyer, or a British accountant, a British politician, you know, whatever, British property, there was always a British role. And that sort of, I became troubled by that. You know, why, what was it about Britain that meant that it was always so central to the financial empires of financial criminals? And that was what I wanted to, a story I wanted to tell. And but there's no point in depressing people. You know, this is a quite a potentially very depressing story. Um, you know, I had an, an editor, a very good editor I worked with once, who once told me that you shouldn't write spinach journalism. You shouldn't write, you know, in the same way that you say to a kid, you know, eat your spinach. It's good for you. Um, you know, they, they'll, they'll eat it, but they won't like it. You need to try and make your spinach tasty so they eat it anyway. So what I try and do is 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 do spinach journalism but but cook it up in such a way that people eat it without realizing they're eating spinach um and so it's how do you make the story you know essentially a depressing and alarming story how do you make it fun uh so you know i mixed up the story of of british enabling financial crime with with um you know the, this idea of britain as a butler britain is this sort of well-mannered uh beautifully dressed but utterly amoral servant who essentially does whatever uh, his, you know, employer wants him to do. Um, and essentially the example I chose to illustrate that is just examples taken from the Jeeves and, Worcester, Jeeves and Worcester stories, which are these comic novels written by a British author called P.G. Woodhouse, um, in which Jeeves, this very intelligent, capable 
sort of manservant uh, will will essentially do anything to get his you know his 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 boss his employer out of trouble and you know it turns out that because there are so many Jeeves stories if you read them all which I did you know there are all sorts of parallels with financial crime and I and so I found that uh, a funny way of telling a serious story um, and so Butler to the world it, you know it's a it's an arresting I think it's an arresting image and it essentially it it allows you to oh allowed me to write a serious story making what I think is a very serious point but to try and do it in a funny way which which people would read rather than just being depressed are you ready to level up your AML and compliance game join us on Wednesday March 1st for the laundry live a live community event streamed on YouTube featuring subject matter experts Q&As, some surprises and exciting topics. This is your chance to stay ahead of the curve and get up to date on the latest AML and compliance developments. Check out the event on Strice's LinkedIn page for more info. See you there. Yeah, and uh, I did read a lot of uh, reviews as well where authors did or, you know, where reviewers said it was depressing depressing reading and I did feel the same way when reading it but it is very clever with this uh, Jeeves uh, the Jeeves parallel you get very fascinated by the story too but I know you can't go through like everything and all of the details but just uh, a high level kind of view on how did the UK and Britain become this world-class enabler of financial crime what are some of the like highlights to that story well, it's a super interesting story because obviously this isn't what Britain used to be. You know, Britain used to be an empire and used to be the oligarch. You know, what what Putin's currently doing in Ukraine, that's what Britain used to do. If we didn't agree with a country's trade policy, we'd, you know, send around some, you know, warships and bomb them until they changed their minds. So, you know, how did we change from being the oligarch to the butler? That's the story that I wanted to tell. And, you know, it's a story that's very much tied to the city of London. The city of London was the engine, the heart of the British Empire. I mean, you could make a quite a strong argument, actually, that it wasn't a British empire at all, but the city of London's empire. And when the empire was gone, you still had this very powerful, very potent financial centre, but without anything really to do anymore. So the story where it begins is in the 1950s with financiers in the city of London essentially looking for something to do. You know, they didn't have an empire to finance. So what do you do with your time? And what they did was find ways to profitably evade the restrictions on the movements of money that were imposed at the end of the Second World War by the creation of what became known as the euro dollar market, which was uh, essentially a way of trading dollars in Europe in such a way that you managed to have no rules and no taxes, and which essentially allowed the owners of capital to break free from the restrictions put in their way at the end of the Second World War in order to try and, you know, keep the world safe for democracy. And in doing so, uh, they invented this wonderful thing called offshore. Offshore is a concept. It's an extremely flexible and profitable concept. And having invented it, they managed to, they wanted to see how far it would go. And, you know, Britain doesn't just do offshore finance. It does, you know, offshore reputations, offshore education, offshore Almost everything you need is available in London. And so London has become this one-stop shop for oligarchs. It will you know, hide your wealth. It will structure your wealth. It will invest your wealth. It will sell you anything you need, um, necessary things, unnecessary things. It will educate your children. It will help you evade taxes. Uh, it will do almost anything. 
And even if you're particularly wealthy and particularly generous to British politicians, it will sell you a place in the House of Lords. So there is this amazing concentration of corruption services available in the city of London or in, in London more broadly. And that's kind of what I mean by Butler to the World. And that's the story I wanted to tell of how that happened. Um, there are many reasons highlighted in your book and you walk through this. But one thing you point out is that you believe that the world would have looked very different if the people who ran the Bank of England were different people in the 80s. Is that what do you mean by that? How do you think the world would have been if it was run differently back then? I, I don't. I mean, more in the fifties than the eighties, really. I think by the eighties, the damage the damage was done. In the dying days of the Second World War, the leaders of the Allied powers had put a huge amount of thought and work into how they uh, structured the global financial system in order to try and prevent a repeat of the, um, you know, the rampant uh, speculation, a uh, financial speculation that helped cause. Uh, the stock market crash of 1929, and then subsequently the Great Depression, and then the rise of fascism and so on. And they had designed a new form of financial system to try and prevent that happening ever again. Uh, and it was amazingly successful, actually, the Bretton Woods system, uh, for as long as it lasted. It managed to to create a more equal uh, society than probably there's ever been, well, actually, I think we probably know than there ever has been before or since. Um but, you know, it was annoying for the owners of wealth to not be able to move their wealth wherever they wanted it. It was annoying because taxes were very high. So there was a huge demand from the owners of wealth for ways around it. Um, and the City of London made its, you know, created its new business model by serving the owners of that wealth. Um, if it hadn't done so, and the reason it was able to do so is because the Bank of England officials waved it through. It wasn't a sort of a a democratic decision by democratic politicians. It was a functionaries in the Bank of England who allowed this to happen. Um, if they hadn't done so, then there's every possibility that the Bretton Woods system would have persisted, and you would have ended with, you know, essentially, uh, you know, the 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 maintenance of the the New Deal structures far more in the United States, the maintenance of of much more uh, control on on wealth with a more equal societies, far fewer uh, oligarchs, if any oligarchs, far fewer super rich people. The world would have been um, a, a more equal place and a more uh, a more decent place for everyone rather than just for the very wealthy. So, you know, it, it's possible that maybe some some other country would have invented this system. Um, but I think they would have certainly struggled to invent it, invent offshore as well as the City of London did, simply because of the legacy of the British Empire. Um, Britain uh, had connections more broadly than any other country pretty much had at the time. And so it was able to um, create a very f powerful form of offshore finance very quickly, which had you know a huge impact, which rippled outwards all over the world, and is still being felt. So, you know, I'm I'm a firm believer that that system that was created in 1944 at Bretton Woods would have been um, a good way of running the world. Uh, that 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 sort of form of democratic control over wealth would have been a very valuable thing to maintain. But the reason we don't have it anymore is is the fault of the Bank of England. Just to get on to some of the more specific things that the butler has helped kleptocrat and oligarchs uh, do, and that is, of course, property buying around London. And I've seen some YouTube videos. You do a klepto kleptocrat tour showing off properties that have been swept up 
by these type of people. And you say that over a trillion dollars each year is stolen and much of it, it needs to be spent and much of it is spent on real estate. Um, can you take our listeners through this kleptocrat tour? What what do you do in those? Yeah, I mean, the idea, I wish it had been my idea. It wasn't my idea. It's the idea of my friend Roman Borisovich, who is a, um, a Russian-born banker uh, who came up with the idea. He's a very funny guy. And essentially, the idea is the same as a Hollywood bus tour. You know, um, you can go to Hollywood, get on a bus, and, and people will point out, you know, that house belongs to, I don't know, Demi Moore. I don't know. I haven't been on one. Uh, that house belongs to Bruce Willis. You know, that used to belong to Charlie Chaplin, whatever I'm guessing, but I imagine that's probably what happens. Um, essentially, the idea is the same, but instead of showing um, film stars, we show houses that belong to oligarchs and kleptocrats. So normally the tour starts, um, uh, there's a very nice house just on the River Thames, just da up downstream from Parliament, uh, where the former Russian deputy prime minister has an extremely luxurious apartment. So normally we start there because it's easy to park. And then what we do then, it sort of depends on, you know, which guides we've managed to get on board. It's only uh, it's only run by volunteers. So, you know, who we can get involved sort of slightly depends on who's available. But the good thing about London or the bad thing about London, depending on how you look at it, is we have kleptocrats from all over the world. So, yeah, if we have an expert in Nigeria, we can talk about Nigerians. We have an expert in Malaysia, we talk about Malaysians. An expert in Kazakhs, we talk about Kazakhstan. Um, but we always have experts in Russia because, you know, that's our crew and there are a lot of Russians around. So... You know, we like to, if the traffic isn't too bad, we like to go to North London to show off this house, Wittenhurst, the second largest house in London after Buckingham Palace. That belongs to a, a Russian fertilizer magnate. Um, we like to go via Knightsbridge because then we can show uh, a tube station that belongs to Dmitry Firtash, a Ukrainian gas magnate. Um, we like to, whichever ones we like to see, there's, I mean, Eaton Square is lovely. Um, it's kind of ground zero of the kleptocratic wealth concentration in London. Or there's Belgrave Square, just a little bit further south, where Oleg Deripaska's family has a place that was occupied by anarchists um, around this time last year, just after the invasion of Ukraine. So, you know, London is full of lovely houses, particularly West London and North London. And a lot of those houses belong to oligarchs and kleptocrats. So we could probably keep our tour going every day of the week um, for weeks and weeks on end and never have to show the same house twice. Uh, you know, it's a target-rich environment. Um, but, you know, normally people are exhausted after five or six houses. So that's normally when we stop. I mean, you can't keep flogging it forever. But the yeah, point is, that, you know, it's a, it's a silly thing, but there's a serious point, right? Which is that we are trying to show British people that we are part of the kleptocratic system. Kleptocracy isn't just something that happens overseas in poor countries, in the kind of places that score badly on Transparency International's Corruption Perceptions Index. That that the corruption is not something that happens within countries. It's something that happens between countries. And Britain is as much to blame for kleptocracy as Nigeria is, or Malaysia, or Kazakhstan, or Russia. Um, by accepting the money and structuring the, the theft of the money, we also have a role to play. And that if we want to stop kleptocracy, we need to stop that happening. So that's why we do the kleptocracy tour. It's it's a, it's a bit of silliness, but it has a very serious message. Um, I was actually yeah walking around Eaton Square after dark a couple of weeks ago uh, to see the area, and it's just it's such a beautiful area. The houses are incredible, but it's just dead. There's no light in any window. You can just go for several blocks, and it's it's no one there. 
you can there's yeah, hardly it's, anyone it's just dead the most beautiful part of london or a very beautiful yeah. part i mean yeah it it is uh, it, i mean it depends when you're there i mean there are different parts times different times of the year when it becomes quite busy obviously the russians aren't around at the moment because they've mostly been sanctioned um so that has sort of really depressed you know the kind of fun factor from an oligarch's perspective um well, one thing that's really interesting and i don't know if you noticed this is that um quite a lot of the plaques on the houses will have will say you know this used to belong to a viceroy of india or this used to belong to the viceroy of canada um or whatever that the these kind of houses the houses that the the oligarchs who've looted nigeria or have looted russia you know they used to belong to british people who looted foreign countries right the 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 continuation between the way the british empire operated and the way kleptocracy operates now is very precise that the mm. same bits of real estate are inhabited by people now uh, who are essentially the descendants of the british people who used to do the same job you know like i was saying you know britain used to be the oligarch and now it's the butler um you know what do you do if you have if you know about empire building but you can't afford to have an empire anymore you sell your empire building knowledge to other people who want to build empires so this is what britain did it basically it 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 changed it so it went from the kind of buy side to the sell side and it changed its knowledge of how to it, it it monetized its knowledge of how to build an empire by essentially advising oligarchs from other countries of how to be oligarchs because we in britain had been very good at doing that for a very long time and the the continuation is incredibly pronounced right down to the same houses being inhabited by oligarchs as were inhabited by british oligarchs back in the day when we used to have them what surprised you the most in writing this book um the the chapter which shocked me most in researching it um simply because uh i didn't expect it when i set out to research the chapter was the one probably on gibraltar uh gibraltar as as you probably know is a peninsula that hangs off the bottom of spain that's been british for through 300 years or so um ever since the treaty of utrecht and you know it's a british naval base it's very um famous in britain but it has reinvented itself in the last uh, two or three decades as one of the major centers of offshore gambling um it has done this incredibly successfully uh, with huge profits for itself and enormous damage being done elsewhere not least in the uk where many of the gamblers live but totally on under the radar you know unremarked in britain the fact that one of our overseas territories is now this huge center for the gambling business is totally unremarked and that's amazing um and the impact that this little you know gibraltar is tiny you know, i i ran around the place in an hour and i'm not a fast runner um you know but the the impact that this little little patch of real estate has had on the rest of the world by becoming a haven for offshore gambling is absolutely extraordinary so that story really shocked me and to be honest i've been a little bit disappointed that that story in the book hasn't made more of an impact here in the uk it has made a bit of an impact but not as much as i would have hoped for because i you know i think it really demonstrates um the kind of amoral nature of what i call butlering in britain this sort of serving the interests of anyone with wealth despite the harm it causes elsewhere but uh, now the uk or is trying to tackle some of these problems and the one especially related to real estate by introducing a new register of the register of overseas owners of uk properties and i saw that you wrote an opinion piece on the topic um can you explain what this register is and what the what you think of it will it really help 
Yeah, so, you know, for a long time, you know, oligarchs or whoever have been buying property in the UK didn't really want to have that, their ownership of that property publicly known. If you own property in the UK, then you're in the land registry and people can just look it up and find out who owns what. So they would own property via an offshore shell company registered in the British Virgin Islands or Liberia or Delaware or wherever. Um, and that very effectively disguised their ownership of the property and also very effectively minimized or entirely reduced uh, the amount of tax they had to pay uh, on that property. So the fact that oligarchs were hiding their ownership became a bit of a scandal. And so gradually politicians said they'd do something about this. Uh, first was proposed that, that, that there would be a new registry of the actual owners of these companies back in 2016. It finally came about as a result of the war in Ukraine. Um, this legislation was rushed through and the, red, and the registry has been created and, and is now live. You can look it up and see who owns what. Or I mean, they're not, it hasn't yet got all the information it needs, but quite a lot of information is available and it's interesting to have a look at. Um, so that's good, you know, and, and I should start my discussion of this by saying it's good. It's good that it's no longer possible to use an, an offshore shell company to hide your ownership in UK property. However, um, during this process, as I said, there were tax advantages using an offshore company. <laughs> um, you know, successive governments eroded those tax advantages. So even before this registry came into effect, the owners of property looked for other ways to own property so as to maintain tax advantages. And they discovered a long time ago that it was um, far more tax efficient and in fact anonymous to own property via a trust than it is to own property via a shell company. So during the period when, you know, there's been this heightened discussion of offshore companies, the number of offshore companies that own property in the UK has been pretty flat, about 90 to 95,000. So that's in England and Wales. But, you know, there probably are, I don't know how many more there are in Scotland, but it wouldn't be that many more. Um, but England and Wales did 90 to 95,000. Um, during that same period, so over the last decade, the number of offshore registered individuals, so trustees, who own property has increased by about 250%. So it's clear that that wealthy foreigners buying property have just gone into using trusts. <coughs> and this transparency legislation has made no difference on that at all. So, you know, this, you know, it, it, the, the door of the stable is shut, but the horse is over the horizon and long and far away. And if we wish to really get to the bottom of this, we're going to need to really tackle trusts as well. So over to banks and AML. So banks, they have been, uh, they are under heavy regulation and are supposed to uncover and stop uh, financial crime. Do you think the current like AML legislation in Europe is addressing the this issue properly? No, I don't think it is. Um, uh, not because banks aren't doing a good job. I think banks are spending a huge amount of money to comply with AML regulations. I just think the AML regulations are absolutely terrible. Um, this what is in particular what, do you think is, uh, what in particular do you think is like what, terrible what, what and should that's, be changed? That's, that's actually what's going to be my, my next book is going to be about this. Um, oh, really? You know, so, yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm having fun investigating and looking into AML at the moment. It's a really interesting story. Um, I think that the problem is that money launderers are entrepreneurial and flexible and endlessly inventive. And so as soon as uh, restrictions are put in their way, they will just find new ways of laundering money. Um, and restrictions on the financial system are now so onerous that 
you know, if you are a clever money launderer with large amounts of money to launder, you'd be foolish, really, to move it via, you know, a major financial institution in the same way that people used to in the old days. So it seems to me very obvious that uh, most money laundering, most very large scale money laundering is now done via the trade system, via the movement of goods rather than the movement of, you know, financial deposits. Uh, that seems, just looking at the numbers um, in discrepancies in trade figures, that seems obvious to me. Um, the fact that, you know, trade-based money laundering receives almost no attention from policymakers um, and very minimal uh, attention from you know, the Financial Action Task Force strikes me as a is a real dereliction of duty. Yeah, why do you think? This... Yeah, do, why do you think that is? Is it because people don't know about it, or is it just because of the inherent slowness of regulations? Uh, look, you know, it's like that old joke about the drunkard who loses his keys, right? And he's looking for them under the streetlight, and the policeman says, "What are you looking for?" He says, "I'm looking for my keys." And the policeman says, did you drop them here? And he says, no, I dropped them in the park, but it's too dark to look for them there, so I'm looking for them here. Um, it feels a bit like that with money laundering. That You know, it's really, you know, relatively easy for look for look to look for discrepancies in financial transactions because financial transactions, you know, it's fungible. You're talking about, you know, a, a limited number of currencies. One, you know, one dollar is the same as another dollar. You know, one kroner is the same as another kroner and that all exists in a spreadsheet and that's that. You know, trade isn't like that. It, you know, a car isn't like another car. You know, a, a, a barrel of Ural's crude is different to a barrel of Brent crude. You know, it's it's much harder to 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 compare trade figures. And it would be, a you know, a real labor to try and look for discrepancies in trade figures uh, in a systematic way. It would require a, you know, a huge amount of invention and, and manpower. And frankly, I think no one can be bothered. So mm. I think that, you know, we have a, you know, a Potemkin system that looks like it's fighting money laundering um, and it's staffed by lots of well-meaning people uh, who I speak to find it extremely frustrating that they're, you know, working their socks off and not really achieving anything. And I think the reason is that, you know, we've built, it's like a castle when you've got one extremely well-fortified piece of the wall. Uh, but if you want to enter the castle, you can just walk around and there's no wall around the rest of it. So why would anyone... You know, if you wanted to launder huge amounts of money out of China, for example, move it via the formal financial system when you can just miss invoice a, a you know, a load of, I don't know, iPhones and, and be done with it. It's uh, it seems pretty obvious to me. So I don't think that the current financial um, regulations around money laundering are working. Um, you know, it's I mean, it's very hard to tell how we'd know if they were working because there isn't really any serious systematic work being done to estimate the amount of money laundering there is in the world but it's certainly remarkable that that sort of notorious estimate of the size of the illicit economy made back in the late 90s um two to five percent of global gdp and i appreciate that that was just a guess at the time but you know people still use that estimate um and you still hear people saying it's two to five percent of global gdp you know think how much effort we've been making to tackle money laundering and terrorist financing in the last you know two and a half decades and yet the estimate of the size of the global criminal economy is exactly the same as the proportion of the formal economy as it was back then. You know, that is not a system that's working. Mm, um, that is a good point. There isn't... Uh, what do you think it is? How would you go about estimating it? How would you go about estimating it? Or like... 
<laughs> well, now you're asking me to talk about how I'd go about estimating it. I find it, I'm very interested in the volume of cash money that, it, that there is in circulation in the world. By, by cash money, I mean banknotes. It is a remarkable paradox that at the same time that in probably every single country that isn't at war at the moment, the cash uh, usage is a proportion of transactions monitored by central banks is falling. Um, in in many Western countries, it's now you know really in, in very low double digits as a proportion of transactions. And yet the amount of cash in circulation increases year after year after year. There's now, you know what, 2.3 trillion US dollars outstanding out there somewhere, twice as many as there were a, year, uh, a decade ago. Um, and yet, you know, cash usage in the United States is falling. Um, the same is true in the Eurozone. What's 1.6 trillion euros outstanding, and yet cash usage is falling. Same is true in the UK, um, Canada, Australia, almost everywhere apart from Sweden. Uh, Sweden seems to have the right idea here. So I was just going to say, I mean, why why is all that cash? You know, why is it out there? Who's actually using it? Mm. It seems fairly to me that this is a, uh, an, a, at least in large part explained by the size of the criminal economy. So if I were going about estimating the size of the criminal economy, I'd start there. If you were a head of AML in a bank and hearing what you said now, what kind of... Uh measures or risk uh, policies would you implement uh, the next day if you just learned about this uh, trade-based uh, money laundering? If I was head of AML, I'd do exactly the same as I as they're all doing because they're not stupid and they know what they're doing. Um, you know, the risk that they face, uh, you know, being blunt, this is part of the problem with the global AML system. The risk that compliance officers face is not money laundering, it's being prosecuted by the DOJ, right? That's the problem. Um, yeah, they're failing is... to be uh, non-compliant, not really stopping, uh, yeah, stopping yeah. So uh, money laundering. It's nothing to do with stopping money laundering. It's all about not facing a nine-figure fine from the DOJ. Um, that's the that's the incentive. Um, and if your incentive is avoiding being fined by the DOJ, you do everything to be compliant with the regulations as they stand. Um, the problem is is at a higher level. It's not with heads of compliance who are just you know doing what's expected of them. Um, it's at governments who don't appear to appreciate the scale of the problem, don't appreciate uh, what's really happening, and don't use the Financial Action Task Force as, as, as a forum to really coordinate efforts that would genuinely make a difference. Because as it stands, they more or less use it to bully small countries um, uh, into doing things that big countries have no intention of doing themselves. And while money laundering continues, as far as I can tell, almost uninterrupted. So, no, I'm not a big fan of the global AML system, but I don't blame compliance professionals for that. Uh, that's not their fault. They're doing what's expected of them and demanded of them. I'm not saying they all do, but in the main, most ones I meet seem to be pretty decent people. Yeah, um, same, same. Uh, yeah. I have the same yeah. impression. People just want to, or I have the impression that people really want to do good, but they're also stuck like with an endless task list of like shoveling data around in old systems or you never there's such a huge workforce now in compliance and it just grows year over year over year but a lot of people aren't really then spending the time doing investigations and uncovering true risk and money laundering but more just fulfilling compliance uh, uh, regulations in like with bad technology yeah and you and you're just kicking kicking the risk onto someone else right you know if you if you if you do all your work and you get your red flags and and you file your suspicious activity reports to the financial intelligence unit, um, and then and then the risk the risk is dumped onto them. And then what do they do with the suspicious activity reports? Well, 
you know, they may get around to reading them or they may not. But they then, if they do, they'll kick it on to a, you know, a, a law enforcement agency and then they may do something with it or they may not. But most of the time, nothing really happens. Yeah, and so, so everyone's generating all these alerts and it never really leads to anything. So, mm. you know, yes, like, like you say, a lot of it's about antiquated computer systems. But to my mind, a lot of it's about they're just not being sufficient staffing in law enforcement agencies and regulatory bodies. And that's a question of a lack of political priority at the top. Um, mm. You know, the governments in almost all countries are failing to take financial crime seriously. They're not taking kleptocracy seriously. And sadly, uh, the fruit of that is what's happening in Ukraine right now. You know, that's what happens if you don't take kleptocracy seriously. Someone like Putin is able to build a regime like he built in Russia, a you know, a really aggressive kleptocracy. And, you know, and, and we're all paying the price. It would be far better to to learn the lesson from this that we shouldn't let that happen again. We should prevent that money coming into our countries in the first place, should prevent oligarchs being able to build up these kind of large fortunes. And and if we do that, you know, in, in the long run, yeah, we might cost our lawyers some fees and we might cost our estate agents some sales. But in the long run, we would make the whole world more prosperous and safer. But one specific question is back to the AML legislation. Uh, what is your take on the recent ruling from the EU court justice on the public access to UBO registers? I think it's a complete disaster. Um, one of the most disappointing developments in, you know, a, sort of I don't know, AML policy or top level policy in in recent years. You know, we've had this. The direction of travel has been quite positive in terms of transparency. Um, in the EU, in the UK, in the US, with the um, you know their own transparency, corporate transparency agenda, which admittedly is you know is is a bit partial, but still it, you know it's from a from a from a pretty bad place. They're getting to a better place. Um, in the in the UK's network of tax havens, um, all of this it, you know is this the fact that everyone's moving together means that that everyone is emboldened to keep moving. You know, mm. it's not one country going off on its own. It's everyone acting together. The fact that the European Court is in this, I think, extraordinarily perverse judgment decided that rich people have a right to privacy when incorporating companies, um, that will inevitably impact on the willingness of Britain's network of tax havens to go along with requ requests from London because they say, well, we'll just be outcompeted by Luxembourg. It will inevitably go uh, have impact on on legal appeals in the United States where people's clients will also feel that they don't want to reveal their ownership of companies. Um, and so there'll be challenges in the United States in the same way. So no, I think it's a great shame. And, um, you know, I, I would really hope that some European politicians are trying to find a way of, of, of around it, but I haven't really seen any sign of that. Um, mm. You know, it, it's funny. I think um, it's still, you know, uh, yeah, we'll wait and see. Hopefully some like AML6 directive and people will be able to do something around that to circumvent this yeah but i mean so i'm sitting in the uk and you know i, I don't know if you've noticed but brexit hasn't been going very well um mm. you know we've been keeping that quiet but it's been a bit of a disaster and but you know if you're looking at weird advantages of brexit the fact that we're not in the eu means that we don't have to apply to this ecj ruling we can maintain yeah, that is true you know our our transparent you know Uh, transparent register i mean we were talking about the register of offshore ownership of property you know who knows if we were still in the eu would that be ruled illegal as a violation of 
of the privacy of oligarchs. They're not allowed to use offshore companies to own property in the UK anymore. It's utterly perverse ruling. Um, I really don't understand it. You know, if you don't want, you know, to have your identity known, just don't own property via a company. Just own it in your own name. It's all, you know, or just rent it. It's there are lots of ways around, you know, not having to declare your identity. So it, it's a it's a real shame. Um, What do you and, think? Um, yeah. Well, you are you are of course shedding a lot of light on the topic with your writing and the books. But what do you think? Uh, other players in the compliance industry, such as Strice, and uh, who do develop software uh, for um, within the compliance space, what could we do to put a more emphasis on this? Um, yeah, the EU court justice ruling is one thing, but the wider topic in general. I mean, look, I think people are doing good good work. I mean, I'm, I find it really interesting. I talk to people who do sort of, you know, I, I knew, you know, reg, reg tech, reg tech, however you pronounce it, um, you know, in, in terms of that kind of stuff, you know, um, people are doing interesting, you know, blockchain tracing stuff in for, for crypto. And yeah, there's all kinds of fun stuff happening all the time. Um, you know, I lose track of all the all the fun stuff that's happening. But You know, the problem is that it's just more efficient ways of looking for the keys under the streetlight. Um, you know, the keys aren't under the streetlight. So, you know, it's it doesn't really matter how efficient you make the 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 AML compliance system if you're looking in the wrong place. So, you know, I think that there has to be a, a greater awareness of money laundering in, in, in the round. You know, the the fact that you know, trade-based money laundering gets almost no attention. You know, it's very, very rarely discussed. It's very, very poorly understood. Um, in trying to explain it to policymakers is a, is a real challenge. You know, if I do a talk and I talk about it, people come up afterwards and say, God, that's amazing. I didn't know that. And I'm like, how you're, you're in the financial crime space. How did you not know about this? Um, so, you know, I think that, that there is a, a real dereliction of duty at the very top in terms of trying to set the agenda around what money laundering is and what it is we're trying to stop because mm. you know you know what's this for you know why are we expending this colossal effort you know i mean how much is the global compliance industry worth i know tens of billions of dollars right hundreds maybe yeah you it's know, crazy it could be incredibly expensive business which is totally failing to stop money laundering like totally mm. failing so you know Why are we demanding that private companies spend this huge amount of money to achieve nothing? Um, you know, that is a, a question that, that, that private companies should be asking politicians. Why are you demanding we spend all this money when it's not changing the situation at all? You know, you are costing us all this money and yet you are not doing the basic work that you should be doing to make sure that, the, that all this money is spent effectively. Because, you know, I mean, I've heard, you know, Jason Sharman, whose work I'm sure you know, who's a professor at Cambridge University and done some really important work investigating money laundering and structures around money laundering. You know, I've heard him say, you know, slightly playing devil's advocate at conferences, but arguing quite, you know, convincingly that we should just give up on AML altogether. Um, you know, it's not achieving anything and it's really expensive. So why bother? Uh, you know, and, and I don't obviously, and he doesn't agree with that. He's made, he's, he's, he's making a joke and I don't agree with it at all. But if you are going to demand that, you know, private sector companies spend a huge amount of money in order to meet some form of public policy objective, then it is incumbent on you as a politician to make sure that that policy that you're setting out is, is a, is a coherent one. And at the moment it isn't. So that's what I think is wrong with the entire ML system. 
um, that that it isn't actually trying to stop money laundering. It's just trying to comply with an almost entirely random selection of requirements set quite a long time ago by people who didn't really understand what they were doing. I think we need to do a part two of this uh, <laughs> this <laughs> this uh, episode when we go so, into the details of like trade-based money laundering and all of this because it's super so, interesting. I had no idea this conversation would take this turn. I had all these questions about oligarchs and property in the UK. So, and, see, I, this I, is I, super interesting. Yeah, getting me to stop talking is the challenge. Seriously. <laughs> Where do we go from here? How do uh, let's get back to the the Britain the butler butler to the world? Um, how no. uh, how do Look, we, how do we clean up the mess we've put ourselves into? In the UK, we got transparent offshore ownership of property. Um, that's it is good. It's not everything, but it's good. We've got uh, a new economic crime bill going through Parliament at the moment. Uh, hopefully, giving uh, corporate registry companies house the powers to check the ownership of shell companies, UK registered ones. That's also good. You know, these are two important pieces of legislation giving important powers to uh, red regulators and registries they need to be used um you know it's no point just buying gym membership if you don't go to the gym right you know it's at the moment you know we've got the gym membership we've got the leisure wear to to go to the gym in but so now you need to do the workouts and get fit so you know the government needs to give corporate registry companies house the money and the people it needs to do the job that's being asked of it it needs to give uh, the law enforcement agencies, National Crime Agency, the Metropolitan Police, City of London Police, and so on, serious fraud office, um, the money and the people they need to investigate oligarchs to drive this money out of London into a confiscate what's already here. Um, and then, you know, if that happens, you can look around and see if any more laws are needed. But we've got good laws. The laws aren't the problem. The problem is enforcement. Um, so what I would like to see is, you know, the kind of resourcing for fighting financial crime that there is for fighting tax fraud. You know, there are thousands of investigators who investigate, do a good job of investigating tax fraud in the UK. They keep the tax caps, tax gap really quite low by international standards. There should be that kind of focus on tackling financial crime. And, you know, I really feel that, you know, there is an opportunity to create a new kind of financial centre in London, which is clean you know that this is the place you go if you want clean finance that you know this is where you go and you're not going to get defrauded and you're not going to have this excessive bureaucracy that you know that the people you're going to be dealing with are well regulated and you know if anyone breaks the law they get prosecuted that's what i'd like to see um but you know it, it's not going to be easy but i do think that there's a real prize at the end of that you know particular road which is available if any politician has the vision to implement it I think that was a hopeful ending to the episode. Um, thank you so much for coming. Uh, it was a pleasure having you here. I learned tons and I'm hoping you want to do another episode. So yeah, hope to see you back. Yeah, but maybe when I'm next in Norway, like we could do it live. Your money make a world go round.